The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Pray with me. Father, the human condition is such that we wander from birth. We are set against you. And you, in grace, sent a shepherd. We give you praise for that. We give you praise that you sent him to effectively chase down his sheep. We give you praise that you sent him to the cross to stand him up as a shepherd between his sheep and the greatest of all dangers, your wrath. You stood him there, and Jesus, we give praise to you that you embraced the cross and received the blow that should have fallen on your people. We give you praise for that. And Father, I pray now that you would commission your spirit to move here in this midst to call your sheep call them to the son the shepherd but most of us here already belong to him have believed him and trusted him and i pray lord that you would move in our hearts and stir us to obedience and trust and hope that you would chase out of us fear and some here lord are not your sheep lord i don't know what you intend to do in different people's lives. I pray you would call some to yourself today, tomorrow, the next day. Use your word to accomplish that. It's my hope, Lord, and my prayer. Cause your word to run. Give grace to me as I speak it. Open the ears and the hearts of those who hear it. Would you be honored here in our midst, I pray, for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen. As my teammate and I left the university building where we had been eating lunch, he decided to peel off and head over to the bathroom, and I went outside to wait for him. And it was then that the student stopped me. He came up behind me got my attention and said to me in broken accented English something like this my friends and I know who you are we know what you are doing and we are warning you you must stop it and he wasn't smiling and I started to get a little tense I tried to speak to him calmly and ask him a few questions try to break the ice and play for some time my friend who was much bigger than me was still in the bathroom and I was hoping he would return imminently he did not. 
So I'm asking him, well, who do you think we are and what do you think we're doing? And my voice sounded funny to me because I'm only taking a breath through about this much of my lungs. And so it was kind of wavering a little bit and I hoped I didn't sound as scared as I actually was. And he said, we know that you are missionaries. We are communists. We hate all religion and we are telling you, you must stop what you are doing. That was about the most frightened that I ever got during our ministry in the Middle East. Actually, what happened is that he never laid a hand on me. And it turned out that we had a two-hour-long conversation about the gospel. So things didn't turn out at all like they might have, but I was scared at the moment. But why talk about something so exotic and so extreme that's never going to happen to most of us? Why not just talk about the time that I was conversing with my neighbor in my front yard, stammering along in this conversation. That he's laying out to me all these things going on in his workplace and his different perspective on him and the things that he's saying and doing, and he's pausing only to elicit my agreement. This and this and this and this, you know? And such and such and such, and I did this and that, right? You know? And as he's going on, I'm starting to think, I don't know. No, that's not right. And I was beginning to see kind of some of his motivation and where he was coming from and what was kind of behind it and different ways that the gospel would connect to that and, and rebuke him and encourage him and different ways that I should be connecting and speaking up. But all that came out of my mouth was a, a, a kind of a stammering, I'm not so sure about that. Scared in my front yard, scared on a university campus in the Middle East, does it really matter? I'm scared. How about you? Have you ever been afraid to bring up the gospel in a conversation? If you're a Christian, the answer is yes. Have you ever been kind of intimidated to, you kind of see a bridge, like where I might go with this, but it just doesn't come out of my mouth for some reason. Intimidated a little bit, frightened, silenced by fear. That is a common problem. And if we're going to become a church that's going to be concerned about people outside of these doors, concerned about people who don't know Christ, it is a problem, not all of the problem, there are other problems, but it is a problem that we have to face and find some way to work through to overcome fear in the midst of evangelism. And my hope and my prayer is that this morning as we look at God deal with Paul in the midst of his fear, Acts chapter 18, that there'll be some help for us here. Paul was afraid. We don't often think of him like that. We think of Paul as, in a Christian's mind, Paul is the model of boldness, confidence. We, we picture him like he was last week in chapter 17, going toe-to-toe with the philosophical elite of the city of Athens. Not remotely intimidated, telling these philosophers what they don't know. That's Paul in our minds. But Paul came to Corinth afraid. We know because we can read 1 Corinthians, a letter that he later wrote to the church that he planted in Corinth, and he tells them in chapter 2 how it was when he came to the city. He says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's bold Paul, afraid every step that he's walking to Corinth. But he went, and God met him there. God did a work in him to help him overcome fear. And my hope this morning is that something that we see in that passage will help us fight the same battle. Let me read the passage for this morning. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Acts 18, 1. 
After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Paul left Athens, still by himself, and traveled westward about 50 miles to the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth is a pretty interesting place. Geographically, think of Greece kind of like an hourglass tilted on its side. There's a very large body of land to the northeast and a very large body of land to the southwest, and it's connected in the middle by just a little neck of land, and that's Corinth. So there's a sea that comes up to one side of Corinth and a sea that comes up to the other side. And that geographic location of the city dramatically affected what kind of city Corinth was. It was a large city. It was a commercial center, a shipping center. You can see how boats would come in from one side and their goods would either would stop there in the city and take the roads either north and south or just cross over the city, get on another boat and take off the other side constantly commerce running through this place, which meant it was extremely wealthy. And as often goes with extreme wealth, it was extremely proud. And it was very cosmopolitan, because not only would goods come through there, but so would people and cultures and ideas and different religions. It was a melting pot, it was a crossroads, whatever kind of metaphor you want to use for it. It was very cosmopolitan. And it had a very widely known reputation for being sexually licentious. Before this time, even, it was proverbial. To be called a Corinthian girl was to be called something. Everybody understood what it meant to be Corinthian. That's the kind of city that this was. Perhaps that's why Paul was intimidated. But as far as the things that might be intimidating to him, it's the perfect place for a church to be. 
It's another one of those massive cultural centers, a mixing of people and ideas. The church has to be there. And so Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth to plant a church, afraid every step of the way, but he goes. And when he gets there, he runs into Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were evidently Jewish Christians who'd already been chased out of Rome. You can read about that in history outside of the Bible. It's touched on a little bit there. Claudius had chased them out, and they'd, they'd come to Corinth there. And Paul meets these folks, and they become lifelong friends. They eventually become partners in ministry, but initially, they're just partners in business. Paul's a tent maker. That's what he's doing to support himself during the week. And on the weekend, he goes to the synagogue regularly to reason with the Jews, attempting to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ. This is his usual habit just like in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens, same thing here. Go to the synagogue, open up the Bible and talk. Jesus is the Christ. The Bible says so again and again and again in this way and that way. He's reasoning that through. And when his friends come from Macedonia, they bring some financial aid from one of the churches there and he's now able to give himself full time to that work. He's had an audience in the synagogue for quite some time, perhaps because the synagogue ruler himself had ears that were kind of interested in this. We read he becomes a Christian eventually, probably right before he became the ex-synagogue leader. But he becomes a Christian eventually. But for a while, he's there in charge, and he provides an opportunity for Paul to talk. And he does, and he does, and he does, and he does. And eventually, they have enough of it. And it says they opposed and reviled him. Technically, it says they opposed and blasphemed him. So it seems to be implying that not only were they against Paul, but they were blaspheming Jesus which would explain Paul's strong reaction. He, he does something that is heavily symbolic. He shakes the dust off of his clothes. We saw this back in chapter 13 before. Something very familiar to his Jewish audience because from time to time, different Jews would do the very same thing when leaving the presence of Gentiles. They're saying, you all are dirty. You're unclean and you're under the judgment of God and I don't want to even be in any way associated with you as I step away. And leave all the filth over there. Paul's turning the tables. He's saying, as I walk out of the synagogue and walk next door to the Gentiles, I want to leave all the uncleanness here. All the judgment of God I'm going to leave here. I'm going to go next door to Gentiles, and they will hear and they will believe. Watch. And they do. A lot of folks come to faith. So, so far, it seems pretty good. But we know that Paul must have still been controlled. Inside, there must have been some fear in there because of what Jesus does. Jesus comes to him in a vision and speaks to him about the issue of fear. This is the center of the passage. We'll talk a little more about this later. But essentially, you see that he has some instruction and promise there. He tells them what he is to do. Don't be afraid. Speak. Don't be afraid. Speak. That's the emphasis, is speak. It's not just don't be afraid so that you won't be afraid. It's don't be afraid so that you will speak. I've got a job for you. You're here to speak the gospel, Paul. And then here's a promise to kind of undergird that and reinforce it. And he reminds him and points out how I'm with you and I'm up to something in this city. Paul hears that and responds to it in faith and continues for the next year and a half to teach the word of the Lord. And then a new proconsul arrives, Galileo. And the Jews think they have an opportunity here. Now, he, Luke includes this story to show how it is that Jesus kept his promise, I'm going to protect you from any harmful attack. I'm going to use this Roman proconsul to do it. Watch this. 
So he includes the story. There's a lot of details there, but essentially it revolves around, is Paul breaking Roman law or not? And Galileo's answer is, this isn't even a case I want to consider. Of course he's not. Get out of my court. And that establishes a precedent throughout the whole Roman Empire for the next decade. Christianity is legal. It falls under the the purview of the empire, and they look upon it favorably. That's an important point for the rest of the book of Acts. But it's here to show Jesus kept his word and protected Paul. That's the text for the day. His ministry in Corinth, it's a couple of years long. If you look at the next verse, Paul stayed for many days after this court case. He's there for a couple of years, and it's summarized in just a few verses, the center of which are those words that are in red in your Bible, the words that Jesus spoke to Paul in the vision. That's what we're going to be focusing on. And essentially what Jesus said to him, here's the main point for this morning, essentially what he said to him was, Paul, speak boldly. Speak boldly, for I am with you to accomplish my saving purposes. Don't be quiet. Don't shrink back in fear. Speak boldly. I'm with you and I'm doing something and it will get done. That's what he's saying to Paul there. I'm going to make two observations related to that statement. One about the command and one about the promise. Let's begin with the first observation. God has given us, if you're a Christian, God has given us a solemn responsibility in regards to the gospel. I'm speaking just to Christians here. He's given us a solemn responsibility. And it's one that we cannot overlook or downplay or minimize or decide is kind of optional. We don't have that choice. It's a responsibility that he has given us. We see it in the command in verse 9. The Lord Jesus says clearly, it's a command. It's not advice. It's not words for consideration. It's a command. Don't be afraid. Speak. Paul, I want you to speak of the gospel of the grace of God. Everywhere here. Talk to people about this. Warn people. There is a God who reigns over all of the earth and people have turned away from him from birth in their hearts. Tell them. They've turned away and have made all kinds of other things to worship. Make them aware of what they're doing. Warn them of a coming judgment against that. Tell them. And by all means then speak of hope. Because there's a way to be forgiven. Tell them that too. Tell them the gospel, Paul. It's why I have brought you here. Paul's unique calling from the time he saved him on the Damascus Road. Remember that? I saved you to be my chosen instrument to carry word of me to the Gentiles and their kings and the Jews. In other words, everybody. Paul uniquely called to that, but be careful there. It's Paul uniquely called to that, but the uniqueness is in the scope and the authority and the power, not in the general nature of the job. Paul's called as an apostle to do something very unique at a particular time in history. He's not called to do something totally foreign from us. Look throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Everybody does this. Paul's missionary companions doing the same thing. Barnabas, Silas, they're all doing it. Other, other apostles, Peter and company, 
other named people like Stephen and Philip, they're all doing it. They are all proclaiming the gospel everywhere. Unnamed people, those who were chased up to Antioch by the persecutions, they come there, what do they do? They speak of Christ, the gospel. They plant a church in Antioch. Everybody does it. Paul's got a unique angle on that, but everybody's called to speak. That includes us. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. It's the nature of the theme verse of the book, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when my spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Every one of us. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you have the spirit living in you, which means if you're a Christian, you have power for the intent of being a witness for him everywhere. This responsibility has been given to us. Jesus reminds Paul of that here. He reminds us of that here. And he reminds us that this is a solemn responsibility. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, Paul's Jewish audience has finally had enough. They reject him. And as he's shaking out his clothes, he says something interesting to them. Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. What does that mean? Interesting statement. It's one that we need to think about. This sobers me. I don't really like to think about this. And I suspect that some of us will kind of want to wiggle out from under it in some way. I I know that's in my heart. We need to think about this. This comes from the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 33, you can jot it down and look at it later. But in Ezekiel 33, God is speaking to the prophet and making clear the little spot that he occupies in Israel's history. At that time, Israel is in full-blown rebellion against God, and he's bringing the judgment of the exile upon them. And he says to Ezekiel something, he first puts it in an analogy form before he makes it personal. He says to Ezekiel there, you know, there's a time come sometimes when I bring the sword against the land. And if the people of the land appoint a watchman, set him up on a wall and tell him to watch, and if he sees the sword coming and he blows the trumpet of warning and the people in the city ignore it, and they perish, they perish because of their own sin, and their blood is on their own heads. That's the part that Paul quotes. They perish because of their sin and they have no one to blame but themselves. But, turn it around, if they appoint a watchman, he sees a sword coming and he does not blow the trumpet of warning and they perish. They perish because of their own sin. It's their fault. But I will require their blood at his hands, the hands of the watchman. Did you get that? He, does, he sees a sword coming, and he doesn't blow the trumpet. They perish, it's their fault, but God in some way holds the watchman who sat silent, who saw the danger and didn't say anything. He holds that person accountable. And then God makes it personal. Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman. Not the people of the land, they didn't pick you, I did. I have given you that responsibility. You are to warn them. Paul gets that, and off the top of his head applies it to himself. Your blood's on your own heads because I told you. I'm innocent. No blame will fall on me. Only on you. I'm going to walk away innocent because I told you. 
He's thinking in Ezekiel 33 terms. He realizes, I've been appointed a watchman. And again, notice Ezekiel and Paul, there's a uniqueness there because of the spot that they occupy in salvation history, because of their authority, because of their their blessing of power, but they are in line with what he has also called us to be. If he has given you his spirit and if he has called you to be a witness, what are you to be a witness about? The coming judgment and the hope of mercy. The same thing. You see the sword coming. If you're a Christian, we see the sword coming. We are to warn people. And if they don't listen, it's not our fault. We don't make people believe. But we must tell them. It's required of us. Connect this to fear. The fear that we experience in evangelism is fear of people. It's fear of what that guy on the campus is going to do to me. It's fear of what my neighbor is going to think of me or say to me, if he's going to laugh at me or mock me in some way. There's a fear there. The remedy to that, part of the remedy to that is to keep in mind, I will be held accountable for whether or not I tell him, not by him, but by God. The fear of God opposes the fear of man. Now, I don't know all of what that accountability by God looks like. I don't know. It doesn't say. What does it mean to have one's blood required at one's hands? I don't know what that means. And it's clear, twice he repeats it in Ezekiel, they perish because of their own sin, not because of me. I didn't make them perish. But in some way, and I think that should be good enough to say, in some way, He calls us to account. That's a solemn responsibility, brothers and sisters. He does not expect us to respond. Jesus saying in the book of John, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. And we're not supposed to say, that looks a little scary. I think not. We don't have that option. You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They don't like us there. Maybe not. Can't do that. There's a responsibility here. Somehow or another, I don't know exactly what this looks like, but somehow or another, we will stand before God and answer to our silence. Answer for our silence. See that. Be sobered by it. May the fear of God grow in you. But the second observation, if that's the hard observation, which I think it is the hard observation, it's the one that I don't like to think about, if that's the, if that's the hard one, there's another one, a second one, which I think is more encouraging. It's found in the promise in verses 9 and 10. Here's a second observation. God has given us a remarkable promise to reinforce us amidst that responsibility. God has given us a remarkable promise intended to steady us to help our wavering, fearful hearts. Something to look at that gives hope. 
It's a, a two-pronged promise, really. Verse 10, he says, Go on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. A phrase he often repeats through the Old Testament. Here he brings it up and reminds Paul, I am with you. It's the promise of the powerful presence of Christ right with Paul as he speaks to those who are intimidating. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of what the gospel provides for us. I was earlier talking about how Paul must speak about sin and separation and judgment and the possibility of forgiveness. But if you only stop there, we run a risk of missing the, the main point, really. Because that's all kind of a negative talk. I'm in trouble and I can get out of being in trouble. Is there a positive way of describing that? There is. Think of like a, a parent and child relationship. Imagine the child does something that is um, extremely grievous to the parent, and the parent is angry and upset, saddened, all a combination of those things, and a rift develops between the parent and the child. And the kid knows, I'm in trouble. Something's not right here. The parent knows it as well. There's a separation. And then suppose that it gets fixed somehow, and there's no longer this rift there. Is the best we can say about it, now the rift went away? We can say more about it. We can say, where there was separation, now there is, positively speaking, connection. Where there was animosity, now there is relationship and love. Where there was hardness, now there is softness. From the child's perspective, I was alienated and now I get my loving parent back. From the sinner's perspective, I was alienated and now I get God back. In all of his being, in all of his nature, I get back that connection to him. That's the positive way of talking about what the gospel does. It doesn't just provide forgiveness, it provides for connection to God. It gives us back the one for whom our souls were made. We were separated from him by sin, from birth. And we run off in all kinds of other ways, and God changes that and reconnects us back to him. We have God back. And from the moment that we trust Christ, if you're a Christian, from the moment you trusted Christ, the moment you were saved, he says to you, I am with you. I'm strong in your life. I'm good in your life. I'm loving in your life. I'm gracious in your life. I'm wise in your life. And I'm with you in all things. Jesus is telling Paul, telling us, he is the one through whom and for whom all things are made and by whom all things are sustained. He's the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Think of what we've seen about him just in the book of Acts. We've seen his might as he destroys prisons and casts out demons. We've seen his mercy as he restores sight and gives uh, the ability to walk to the lame. We've seen his judgment as he strikes down Herod. That's who Jesus is, and he says, I'm with you. He's the king over nature. He's the king over the demonic. He's the king over the church. He's the king over everything, and he stands at your side to bless you. What in the world is there to be afraid of?
He says that himself. You have me, what is there to be afraid of? Well, there's plenty to be afraid of, but there's nothing to really be afraid of. If he is who he is, and he is where he is with you, what is there to be afraid of? Now, as a little aside here, this is true in all areas of life for the Christian. Now, that particular passage, this particular focus in this passage is on evangelism. It's on sharing the gospel. But if you step back for a second, it applies across the board. He's king over nature. He's king over the demonic. He's king over people. He's king over the church. I mean, he's king over everything, not just over things related to evangelism. He reigns over the big stuff. If he controls like the wind and the waves, he controls the atoms in your body, the cells that are acting up, doing whatever they are doing in your body. If he strikes down kings and casts out demons, he can control your boss or your spouse. He's with you in everything in life. That's important for us to realize, I think, because for a number of us here this morning, you're facing fears in life that aren't remotely related to sharing the gospel. They're about some of that other stuff like work and family and health. Realize that Jesus is with you. Strong to deliver in whatever situation you're facing. Trust him. Nothing happens in your life that doesn't come through his hands, that he doesn't intend to happen, it isn't going to be with you in the midst of. With you in the midst of it to do good in your life, to love you, to conform you to his image. He's with you to do good. And if you're not a Christian, he could be with you to do good. The whole point of what he wants Paul to speak and what he wants Christians to speak is a message about how a person can come back to him and not just be forgiven and no longer in trouble, but be reunited to him. Have him with them to bless. You can have that. Trust Christ. So it's, it's that simple. Stop trusting yourself. Trust Christ. Turn to him and say, I cannot do this. I cannot lead my life. I cannot pay for my own sin. I trust you to do that. I bow my knee to you. Take me as your own. And I'll be with you. But the general flavor of this passage is related to evangelism. It's an encouragement to us as we face fear in sharing our faith. So we need to look at that a little more closely. Verse 10 goes on to explain why is it that him with us should chase out fear specifically? Well, he continues on. He says, no one's going to be able to attack you in a harmful way. That doesn't mean there's not going to be any attacks. It means there aren't going to be any successful attacks. They're going to harm you. Because Jesus doesn't allow such a thing? No. Paul's been run out of a number of cities already. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's been beaten by rods. He's going to be imprisoned and martyred, just like James was and Stephen was. Jesus does not prohibit all harmful attacks. He's saying right here, I'm not going to allow any harmful attacks right now because, the verse continues, for... I have many people in this city. 
Not referring to Christians. He's not saying that Corinth is so Christianized that everybody's going to love you and accept you. He's referring to John 10. I'm up to something here. I have many people in this city, many sheep that I am about pursuing. That's why I brought you here, Paul. And I'm going to stand you up and support you and protect you from all comers because I have sheep here that I am calling in. And they will hear my voice and follow me when you speak. I'm with you to speak through you to call in my sheep. So speak my word. Do you see the encouragement that's supposed to be to Paul? We sometimes get our minds kind of wrapped around the doctrine of election and wonder what, what to think about that and how we should evaluate it and whatnot. Jesus just says that to Paul as a point of encouragement. This is going to work, Paul. You know why it's going to work? Because I'm working it. I'm up to something. There are people here that I'm pursuing. I'm pursuing them through your mouth. So I'm going to stand you up and support you. Trust me and speak. It's meant to be an encouragement. He's with Paul. Up to something. He's with Paul. Gathering in his people. So Paul, speak. That's the same encouragement to us. There aren't a lot of details in that. He doesn't say there are 42 people in this city and here's where they live. Go get them. It's not that detailed. It's just a general statement of encouragement. I'm doing something here and I'm going to protect you until I get it done. That same thing speaks to us. I'm doing something here in this valley, and I'm going to assure that it gets done through you, so speak. I don't have any idea what that means in detail. That's okay. We don't have to know in detail what that means. What we have to know is that he's with us, and that he's doing something, and that it will get done. So trust him. The first observation, the first piece of this statement that fights against fear in our lives is a calling of us to the responsibility that we face. And the second piece is a reinforcing with a promise. I'm with you. I'm going to accomplish my work through you. The bottom line is, trust me and speak. Boldly speak. I'm with you to accomplish my saving purposes. May this work to fight against fear in your life. Christ is with you. Christ is at work. You have responsibility, so do it. Let me pray, and as I pray, you pray. I'm going to pray silently here, so you can pray silently. Think about what do you need to evaluate in this sermon, what you need to take home from this, and prepare your hearts as we move towards communion. And then I'm going to pray out loud to close us off after a minute or two. Father, would you drive fear out of our hearts? It's a problem that we all face because we are fallen humans and we are prone to look at ourselves. And like 10 of the 12 spies, evaluate our inabilities and 
those folks over there their strengths and totally forget about you. Forgive us of that. Drive fear out of us, Lord, by making us aware of you and of your presence in our lives. Of your ability to accomplish your work and of your expectation for us to be involved in it. Make us aware of those things. Press them on us deeply, I pray. And Father, as we now move to celebrate, to remember, to give thanks for what you have done at the cross, the center of all of our lives. As we move towards that, Lord, would you minister in our hearts? I don't know what each person here needs, but would you minister to us personally, individually? Remind us of Christ. Remind us of grace. Draw us to follow you closely. Pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.